Father, I ask God that we have an open and receptive heart, that we're willing to listen to your Spirit leading us, that we're willing to make the transformative changes that you call upon us. God, we thank you that we belong before we even decided you were part of us. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to follow you. Bless our word, bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to add a second welcome today to everybody that's here and those who are online as well, uh, just to let you know that we are enjoying the book of Acts together. I've had several people mention to me that they enjoy reading the book of Acts, refreshing themselves, haven't done it in years, but uh, are really excited to get back inside it again. So we are in the book of Acts, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that book because I feel that it's something that we probably need to revisit on a regular basis, and we are in our second series in the book of Acts called Advancing. Uh, advancing. And so we are moving into the part where we talk about how God pushes and nudges the church forward. Last week was the first sermon in that series. It was called Death and Growth. Lovely title, I know. Uh, You're very excited about that. If you haven't had a chance to review it, then welcome to dive into that as well. But Death and Growth. um, And it was really about Stephen uh, deciding and choosing uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to rise up to the challenge. And, uh, and I left this burning question with you. What will it take for you to rise up to the challenge? What will it take for you to rise up to the challenge? Some of it, so many of us will say, yes, I want to follow God. Yes, I want to be committed to God. But sometimes we hold back on that. And yet God is saying, there's a vacuum. There's a desperate, desperate need for you to step up to the challenge. And we're faced with this every single day. And uh, today in particular, we actually pick up the text literally where the text ended last week. So as that text ends last week, there are these epic words that Luke, the author of Acts, kind of just transitions as he talked, as Peter ended last week, telling us that how it was just powerful how Stephen's there being stoned, and as he's being stoned, he looks up and he sees the glory of Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus Christ, and he is in peace with God, right? And he falls asleep, and Luke literally says this, and Saul approved of his execution. That's the next sentence and Saul approved of his execution. That's not family, that's not community. Brother Saul's enemy was Stephen. It's not bad enough, right, that the Romans were hunting down the Jews left, right, and center. No, they actually turn on each other as well. All over what? Because uh, they disagree. They disagree. And Saul approved of his execution. Well, I don't want you to forget that thought, uh, because in two weeks' time, we're going to look at our brother Saul uh, in the message which is called, All I Do Is Win, uh, which I know is something that you guys often face in your life. You wake up in the morning and say, all I do is win, I know, uh, but that's what Saul felt. Uh, he got up every day and said, all I do is win, and we're going to wrestle through this character Saul and the transformation that happened in his life here. But because of Saul and this persecution, the gospel starts to get spread. And because of this, there's this huge amount of pain going on. God works inside there. Inside the chaos to create a moment, inside the panic to create a way forward, and inside the stillness to show us how to walk on that water. This is how God works. So, question number one, question number one in your worship guide, and it will be on the screen as well. What significant circumstances have shaped your walk with God today? What significant circumstances have shaped your walk with God today? I'm, I'm going to get real practical with you and just kind of like 
paste this out so that you understand how significant this is, but there has to be a series of circumstances that come together that when they do, it provides you the space to make the huge leap in life sometimes. And, and you didn't plan all these circumstances, that's what's the beauty of it. A whole series of things fell into place with something like the door opens, it made sense, and now I can be able to leap forward and do something amazing. The best metaphor that I can think of to kind of describe this is that we are supposed to be a river, and we are this river that changes the lay of the land. But in order to be a great river, you have to have the source of all these streams. So it's all these circumstances, all these streams that feed in and create this river, and the river shapes the land. And it's a great, I think that's a great metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, yeah, I, I wrote that down in my manuscript that I like this. Uh, just in case I forgot that I liked it. No, I do, I really do. But this is a really great book uh, that came out a few years ago by Walter Isaacson. I don't know if you read it, called uh, The Innovators. Uh, and it's really worthwhile, you should get a copy of this, read this book, it's great. He talks about the history of innovation, the history of this creation of different things like the computer and the internet that we live in today. And it says that, look, these are not created by one single person. I know we may have a name of one person that we'd like to acclaim this to, but they are because of lots of individual streams that all came together and dreamed up the internet that made it possible for us, so that we moved the power from the gatekeepers and central authorities that everybody has access to data, and everybody has this river that can share this data, and that river is known as the internet. I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta. Anybody been to Atlanta? Yes. Anybody ever been on the Coca-Cola tour in Atlanta? Oh, two of us. All right. That's good. Well, I hate tours. Uh, I wouldn't recommend tours at all, but, but uh, I just I don't understand why you do that, but I did it. Uh, I did it. And it was interesting just because when you learn about the history of Coca-Cola, you learn that they captured the world market because of World War II. World War II is what gave them the circumstances to capture the world market. And just so we're clear, Coca-Cola did not start World War II, all right? And caffeine is not the cause of World War II either. I know there was some confusion, uh, and, I, and I want you to understand this, because while we laugh through that, many times when we think of God working in circumstances, we think that God orchestrated and manipulated them in a way that we had no choice in them. God works in our choices, and those are the circumstances, and he pulls something out. So, Coca-Cola realized this during World War II. Uh, the American government wanted to raise the morale of their soldiers fighting on the front lines. And uh, they had this dream, and they thought to themselves, well, we, well, we'll make them happy, and how do we make our soldiers happy? We should send them Coca-Cola. I mean. Of course, that's what you do, right? Uh, and so they built all these factories all over, wherever the, the Americans were fighting in World War II, they built a factory in those places, and, uh, and they used their secret formula, and they provided Coca-Cola to them. Interesting, uh, in the United States, nobody could buy Coca-Cola. It was like a, a, a shortage, right? So nobody could afford it here. But any GI fighting out there, man, guaranteed they could buy it, and they could get the bottle of this black nectar the gods' nectars and stuff like that. But anyway, you may like Pepsi, I know. I'll pray for you more. These, uh, these things happened. They built all these factories, and when they left, when they left, um, and the war was over, 
they decided to just leave the factories there, and that became the franchises. So thankfully, because of the taxes paid by us and uh, by others, we were able to build Coca-Cola factories all over the world. And, uh, and that's how Coca-Cola was able to branch out through the circumstances side there. You probably picked up in the Daily Walk this week, and uh, we send this out every day, and we also have a hard copy outside Pastor Jessica's office there, that uh, there are lots of streams that came together to make the story where the story is today. And those streams range from little things that we need to know, things like Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Uh, the Samaritans thought they were superior, the Jews thought they were superior. There was deep resentment. That is a major stream inside there. Yet, Jesus tells the people about a story of a good Samaritan and tries to change their mind about the way that they perceive the Samaritans. That's a stream inside there. Jesus takes a detour on a journey, stops in Samaria, sees this woman at the well, and talks to her. He says this, come, as a result of this, she says this, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. And many more believed because of his word. So you understand this, that before the apostles even arrive in Samaria, Jesus has already been working in Samaria. The stream is coming together. Stephen gets arrested unfairly. He's choosing to step up to this challenge. He's stoned to death because of their jealousy. And Saul, remember, approved of his execution. That's a stream as well. And then the fear of everybody living in Jerusalem because the persecution was horrible. If you read in Acts 26, it will tell you that it, Paul tells you that he was relentless when it came to persecuting people. But that persecution caused them to actually move and go to Samaria. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They were good in old Judea. They were good with that. And Samaria, Jesus said, they were not good with that. And to the ends of the earth, they were not good with that. Do you see what's happening here? The, the kind of Duplo and Technic inside here. The Duplo is that there's all these stories taking place. The Technic is when he pulls it all together. And he says, look, there is this beautiful stream building this incredible river because the circumstances made it possible for the gospel to go to Samaria. And it wasn't that God said, I want this persecution to take place. I want this to take place. It's all these streams coming together. All of this brings us to our friends, the Samaritans, that God was trying to reconcile the world through the gospel. And they were reconciling with what we would refer to in the sermon title today as frenemies. Everybody uses the term frenemies a lot. Well, we've got to thank Disney for that. So if you like Disney, you probably have seen it a little bit in there, but Disney really made this popular. Frenemy is a combination of enemy and friend combined together. And when you put those two words together, you create this really weird word that sounds like frenemy that just, if you say it enough times, it starts to feel weird yourself as well. They were frenemies. They were resisting each other. They were hurting each other, pretending to be friends at times, openly not being friends at times, pretending to support each other at times, openly not supporting each other, looking like they were connected, but they weren't. And the Samaritan Jews really wanted to hurt each other all the time. Question number two in our worship guide today. Question number two. Are you a frenemy with your community, with your loved ones, and with God? That's a pretty hard question. Because we like to all believe that we're pretty honest and straightforward about who we are with our community, even with our loved ones, and with God. Are we a frenemy with God? Are we like, hey, 
I, I kind of am being honest with you, but I'm not always being honest with you. Becky, my wife, was pregnant with Joshua, so this is like over 18 years ago, and uh, we went to visit this family uh, for lunch at this church that I was working at. And I, I, look, I love this church still to this day. They're a great church. As we were eating, um, the father, uh, the host there, he began to share stories of his childhood. Uh, he was sitting right here next to me at the head of the table. I was here, and Becky was sitting opposite me. He was a very elderly fellow. Uh, he had gone through World War II, survived World War II. Um, and as a result of this, he was probably very familiar with some of the language of World War II that was used by government officials. Um, there's this famous story about George Whig, who was a member of parliament, who was shouting down at Winston Churchill, uh, discussing the Burmese people, the Burmese people. And this is what uh, George Whig said to Winston Churchill. He said, the honorable gentleman and his friends think they are all wogs. Indeed, the right honorable member for Woodford, which is Winston Churchill, thinks that the wogs began in Calais, which is another insult because everything from France is horrible. Um, and so he, a government official, uh, was using a racist term, a very deep racist term. When a government official, though, um, as a member of parliament, uses racist terms, it kind of gives you the impression that maybe you can do the same too, right? That's what you feel. Like, if your leaders are doing this, well, then surely I can do this as well. And so it wasn't too difficult for me to understand that that's the world that this particular gentleman had grown up in. Wogs are not a, a friendly term. They are deeply offensive. So we're eating. We're enjoying the meal. And he started to talk about foreigners who arrived in his country. He was from Ireland. He said, ah, oh, these wogs, they came into my country. They took all the pretty girls, married them, and got them pregnant. And then they had these really ugly babies. I'm sitting down across my wife, who's like six months pregnant, and everything inside me, everything inside me is just like bubbling. And everything inside me, I'm like, you know, how do you respond to that? But racism is so deep um, that he wasn't like doing this to be spiteful. I mean, he invited me to his home and I'm good friends with him and we're good friends now and all this kind of stuff. He was just like, this was his thing. He just said it just easily, right? It's his life. Because it, it's this belief, and it's, it's a deep belief, because some people think racism is about color. It's not about color. It can be about color, but it's far deeper than this. It's a belief that I am better than you. We are superior. That's what racism is. We sometimes like to call it uh, speaking truth, right? Uh, we sometimes, we, we get all hung up on what people are doing. We're like, oh, man, that person needs to be this particular way. We, we even act like voyeurs. And I use that term specifically, voyeurs over some people. We're so intricately involved in what are they doing? It's kind of disgusting. We've separated the wheat and tares in the church, in our communities, when God said, that's not your business to do. And we've damaged people. So Philip, in the story that you heard read earlier, arrives as the racist in Samaria at least the perceived racist in Samaria. He sees the Samaritans who consider themselves to be superior to him as well. Do you think Philip found shelter in Samaria? Do you think that Jesus had laid enough groundwork in Samaria where there were people saying, Philip, I follow Jesus, come stay with me. 
because I know what your heart is. I'm pretty sure he did. And he goes there and he starts to build these bridges of reconciliation. When he preached the gospel, this was the result of what he did. Acts chapter 8, verse 8. There was much joy in the city. Wasn't that great? There was much joy in the city. And I ask myself this, and I ask us this question. Do, do we create joy in Boulder? Do we create joy in the cities that we live in because we exist? Are people saying, man, the school is so much better because you're there? Your work environment is so much better because you're there. Or are they thinking, how do I get rid of you? <laughs> I hope you transfer to another school. I hope you move from my street. You know? Do we create joy in our homes? Do we bring joy? People were being reconciled with each other. People were being reconciled with God. And as a result of this, they were baptized. Now, Simon, who we heard in the spoken word that Paddy read, he says, when he heard about Jesus, this Simon, when he said he believed, he got baptized. That's what he did. That's just a response. He got baptized. So question number three um, for our, from our message this morning is uh, in our recalibrate questions here, I think actually helps us process what this means. What is your response to the gift of salvation? What is your response to the gift of salvation? As Philip was explaining that Jesus has come, that this is who he is, the risen savior, this gift, what is your response? I think the problem is that we have as a habit of friends believing in mottos like uh, survival of the fittest. Uh, It's a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, We're overwhelmed with ourselves. I was listening to this uh, message, uh, this graduation speech by Zadie Smith. Uh, She's a British novelist and a creative uh, writing professor. Uh, As she was speaking to the graduates, she said, I'm going to apologize to the millennials. All you millennials are graduating in this class. Uh, She said, I'm going to apologize for creating my generation, her generation, same age as I am. She said, we created reality TV. We created Who's Got Talent? We uh, have this deep obsession with hipsters being different, but they all look the same, right? Uh, She said, we resist, she said, we resist the collective. We resist the idea that we should actually do things together. We think that we should be individual because individual is important. And as a result, she said, we've isolated ourselves. We do this with our faith as well, friends. When you hear about Jesus, we make it so personal so private that it's kind of a shock to find out that you, you, you follow Jesus? Get away! <laughs> it's not that way. Baptism is public. It's a promise to live like a follower of Jesus. It's a promise to be accountable in community. It's a promise to be still in Jesus. So what's uh, really stopping you from being baptized? Huh? I mean, really, I mean, I'm just asking, what stops you from being baptized if all it is is you saying, I see who Jesus Christ is, and I want my community to know who Jesus Christ is, and I'm going to publicly be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, in the early church, when they believed and wanted others to know, I am with Jesus, they got baptized. That's what they did. That's what they did. It was as simple as that. It wasn't any complicated other thing. It was just, I got baptized. This is why Luke has to bring in this one character, Simon. Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, Simon who, by the way, called himself great. (laughs) 
He was an early Gen Xer, millennial cross there inside there, just kind of working himself out. So Luke wants us to know about this Simon. Now, there are all sorts of theories as to who this Simon became. Uh, there's uh, quite a lot of like, interesting archaeological digs and historical findings where some people believe that Simon um, eventually took on the name of Peter, um, Simon Peter, not the Simon Peter of Apostle, but Simon took on the name of that, this magician, and he actually is the father of the first Christian church. And therefore, the mixture of Christianity and paganism was at the birth of the church, hence the Reformation pushed back on this, saying we need to come back to something else. So there's a lot of interesting ideas floating around there, and if you love conspiracy theories, spend a lot of time so there. But the text, the text doesn't spend any time in that. The text actually focuses on this Simon for another reason. The text is focusing on someone who is seeing the beauty of God. Someone who sends, sees the beauty of God and decides they're going to box God up into this little container. They're going to slide their black American Express card and they're going to control it for their benefit. And it is a deep call for us to think about, do we own God? I mean, seriously, do we own God? For many of us, I think that this is what we do with God. We see God, we understand that he exists, we understand the beauty of the Trinity, we understand the call that God has played on our life, and we want to just process it by ourselves. And once we process it by ourselves, we want to just say, well, God, I'm going to just have you on tap when I need you. I'm going to, I'm going to call you when I need you, I'm going to just respond to you when I need you, but right now, I don't want to be fully, 100% engaged in you, because if you're engaged in my life, if I'm a follower of you, you're going to call me to places. And if you call me to places, you're going to advance me to a space that becomes really uncomfortable. I'm going to have to like all people. I mean, I don't have to be besties with them, but I'm going to have to like them. I'm going to have to love them. I'm going to have to accept them and say they're welcome inside here. This is why it's always puzzling to me that we have created these categories of what we say is acceptable to belong and what's not acceptable to belong. And I know we have to define ourselves, right? We can't just say, well, come as you are. No, no, no. You, you could never do that, right? You could never just say, God just accepts you as you are. No, no, we would never say that, right? I'm being sarcastic, just in case. We're like, mm, I don't know. What is, is, is he telling us that? I don't know. That's kind of confusing. Okay, I'll preface everything I say before I say it. <laughs> you're like, some of you are like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should, we should not say that. <laughs> No, because God is saying, look, I am the one. God is saying, I am the one who initiates inside you. I am the one who calls you. I am the one who brings this desire to follow. And God is saying, you don't own me. You don't get to buy me. I bought you. I'm the one who sacrificed for you. I give you this free gift. I had an email from this guy this week uh, who uh, wrote to me and asked me, um, uh, if I believed that the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law, uh, was required for salvation. So I don't know who this person is, uh, I don't know where they are, and so I wrote back to them and said, uh, well, it depends what you mean by Mosaic law, because uh, I, I, I don't know, does he understand what he's saying when he says Mosaic law, does he really fully grasp it? Maybe he does. So we started this exchange back and forth. Eventually it got narrowed down, he said, our website says the Mosaic Law. And I said, really? I, I didn't know that our website said this. So it's a brand new website. And uh, we've got like 
two pages. So I'm, I'm like, tell me where on our website we're saying the Mosaic Law. Eventually, he narrowed it down, and he agreed uh, that he was saying the Sabbath. I said, oh, well, the Sabbath is not the Mosaic Law, uh, but, um, but I understand what you're saying, um, because you may have confused those two terms. The Sabbath was created way, way, way before, from the birth of creation, before sin. Sabbath always existed. It wasn't like God's like, oh, you know what would be really good now? Sabbath, let me introduce it. <laughs> he was like, from the beginning. He always knew it was a blessing, and he created right from the beginning inside us. So we're dialing back and forth, and he, he keeps on coming back saying, I really want you to tell me, do you believe in salvation, in Christ alone, by Christ, by grace? And he's, he's starting to spell it out. And I keep on saying to him, I'd like to meet you. Then he said, I'm not coming to your church. Oh, so that's local. I'm not coming to your church until I know what you believe. I said, all right, well, we'll dialogue some more back and forth. And I keep on saying to him, listen, uh, I'm going to take a leap. Yesterday, I, I just took a leap with him. I said, you're not answering any of my questions. You keep on asking me these same questions, and you just keep on rephrasing them. And now you're getting a little bit more detailed about it. So I said, let me take a leap. I think you're a Christian. That's what I wrote to him. I think, I think you're a Christian. I think you, you use terms like this. You probably even maybe belong to a Christian church or, or you've been to a Christian church. I think you're trying to suss out whether I'm a legalist or not. I think you're trying to work out uh, whether I believe in salvation as the Bible portrays it or whether I have some kind of like weird interpretation inside there. So I tried to say to him, look, the church, our church, my tribe, our denomination here, myself as well, we believe in Jesus as a gift from salvation. You cannot earn salvation by keeping the Sabbath or by being vegan or by you know, dressing well or by loving people. The gift is from God. The response is to follow God, right? God gives you this gift and it hits you and you're just like, I want to get baptized. I want to be able to be a follower. And then you got to live that life. That's what God calls you to. And I think that we misstep all this stuff. So I laid out a few other things, and he hasn't replied yet. He went cold. All right, all right, we'll see, we'll see. I'll write to him tonight and see if he wants to engage in the conversation further. The problem is this, is that we want to manipulate God and put God into a list of what we have. And we have found all sorts of ways of how to control this. So our final question this morning, can we really let the Holy Spirit lead. I know that you've probably never thought about that crossing your mind. You're probably, I, I never argued with the Holy Spirit. Of course I let the Holy Spirit lead. But let me give you some examples that I think sometimes we have skipped over so quickly and we don't realize how we're not letting the Holy Spirit lead. When we consume faith and never give back, all right? When we take, take, take and never give back, when we're selfish with our faith, we are not actually letting the Holy Spirit lead because the Holy Spirit calls you in the Bible and Acts, it calls you, and as a result of this, you gotta tell people about Jesus. You gotta do something with it. You can't just keep it inside yourself just for yourself. When we try to control our faith, and we say, I'm gonna remove this sin in my life by my sheer willpower or an Apple phone app, Something will help me address this. It will hold me accountable because you think you're going to become a better person without God. This is actually a very popular one. When we bargain with God for blessings in our lives. Okay, God, I will give you this if you give me this. I'll pay a double offering, a double tithe if you give me this because that's how God works. God's like, yeah, that's, that was worth a lot. 
all right, bless them some more, right? That's what we do. We kind of like negotiate with God. We say, God, that's the way you work only. You only work when I do things for you. God's like, no, my sunshine lands on everybody, the good and the wicked. I bless everybody. I'm constantly calling people because I am a good God. I am the God. And we want to control him all the time. When we lead for our name, and we don't lift the name of Jesus. When we need all the credit, and we don't lift the name of Jesus. When we construct anything that gives us power and pushes other people down, that's when we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. The Holy Spirit is not controlled by us. The Holy Spirit is powerful. And Jesus says it's like this wind that just comes, blesses you. You don't even know where it came from, moves on, and you are just moved and transformed to tell people about Jesus. In the verses that followed inside this text here, uh, Tim Gillespie is going to speak about this next week. Literally, as a result of the Holy Spirit arriving inside this text here, Philip goes to another place, teleported, transported, Star Trek style. There's so much incredible beauty taking place when we listen to the Holy Spirit. The problem is we don't put our trust in God the Father, in God the Son, or the Holy Spirit. I've been thinking about this for a few weeks uh, before the Final One project ended. Um, and I use this text uh, at, the, at the One Project as, a, as part of the close. I'm going to use this text as part of this series here, and that's why I chose it there, and I chose it because I think it actually speaks to us as I preach through here all the way through to Easter, because Easter morning we're going to address something deep and difficult for us as well. They see this Egyptian army coming behind them, right? They cry out upset with Moses. You brought us out here to die. I know you released us, but you brought us out here to die. This is not what you called us to. And so Moses says to them, look, I'm gonna tell you this. I'm gonna tell you this once, I'm gonna tell you this twice. Let me tell you this. Do not fear and stand firm. And then he utters these words, and these are complicated words. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Right? The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And you, it's not hard to remember where this text is. It's Exodus 14, 14. That's it. 14, 14. Very easy to remember. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And when we place our lives in the hands of God, we only need to be silent. <laughs> when we have let the Holy Spirit lead we'll realize that we are different people. Mark's gonna lead us uh, through a new song today, a uh, brand new song. We've never sang this at this church yet, but it's a, it's a powerful song. Um, it's a call for us to remember that God is just incredible, right? That it's no longer any more time for us to be frenemies with God. It's no longer any time for us to be frenemies with each other or to even despise the community that we exist in. It's time for us to sing that God, you are the king of my heart. You belong inside here and you have changed me. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as Mark leads us in the song here. And I'm gonna just let you know that the reason why this song was written is pretty beautiful as well. She, uh, she wrote the song and she says this about the song. She says, this song is about the tension that we often find ourselves in in life. She said, at the time that she wrote the song, I was processing the divorce of my parents. At the same time, she was having children herself and she was like, I've got to take care of my kids and my parents are getting divorced. And both of these experiences, having children and her parents getting divorced, changed her entire identity. So she wrote the song, King of My Heart. 
to remind herself that there was no joy or sorrow that God could dilute, uh, that could dilute because the pure goodness of God was everything. Everything I thought I lost could actually be found in the force of his goodness because God is good and he's good all the time. Father, oh Lord, so many circumstances in our life pulling us all different places, God, but you, in the midst of the chaos, help us to be still, help us to be able to hear the Spirit speak to us. May we respond, God, to that call. May that call not just be about us, but may we tell others as well about your Son. God, we, we long for your return. We thank you that you are good in all of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.